and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home I ran up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. My name is Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us as we unpack how some of the best performers in the world intentionally set their mind to be their best. And so we are constantly sifting for what we call intentional gems to figure out what are these people doing habitually, daily, to try to be their best. And today's guest is really one of those intentional performers, Flo Groberg, enlisted in the army and became an army ranger after he finished college at University of Maryland in 2006. He also ran track and field at University of Maryland. He excelled at it in high school, and he'll talk about some of that experience as well. But Flo joined the army in 2006, in part as a reaction to what he saw in 2001, September 11, 2001, and also his family's background. And uh, his family has a history of fighting different types of terrorists uh, all over the world. And Flo will share why he decided to join the army and why he decided to go the ranger route, uh, which are some of the uh, toughest uh, trainings. And he'll talk about the challenges that he faced while in training and, and just becoming a ranger in itself is a immense, immense challenge. But Flo headed over to Afghanistan as an army ranger and worked security for colonels over there. And while over there, he came up close and personal with a suicide bomber. And he will talk about that experience and how that experience really changed a lot of his life. Um, and he ended up, as a result of this interaction, winning the Medal of Honor, winning a Bronze Star, winning the Purple Heart. And just to give some context, there are only 71 living Medal of Honor recipients. And Flo is not that old. Um, so he is bears a, a massive responsibility to represent that Medal of Honor uh, with courage, as he'll talk about, and also with love. Uh, he also wrote an amazing book, which I read, which I highly recommend, which is called Eight Seconds of Courage. So definitely check that out. And Flo does a lot of public speaking as well. So uh, you can find all the information about Flo in the show notes. And we are just really excited and honestly grateful that Flo was able to give us the time to share his story, to get into some pretty tough stuff. Uh, he battled depression and some suicidal thoughts. And obviously, 
extreme pain from uh, what happened to his leg. So he's going to get into those details and was just really open and honest and vulnerable in this conversation. So thanks so much to Flo for coming on. I know you're going to love this conversation. And when you do, please share it. Share it online, share it on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever it is that you're social. We need to share stories of courage. We need to share stories of love. And if nothing else, you should take away that Flo really values those two things uh, in the teams that he works with and the teams that he was a part of and also how he goes about his life. So courage and love. Uh, Let that sink in. And without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Flo Grober. Flo, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, Excited to have you here. Uh, Excited to chat with you about a lot of different things. I just finished reading your book and uh, it's an emotional roller coaster. And I highly recommend people check out your book. Uh, Really well written and some incredible stories in there. And uh, some certain, there's some humor in there. There's some sadness in there, but just some amazing storytelling. So um, thanks for sharing your story with the world. And I'm excited to chat more with you today to find out a little bit more about your mindset. Um, so where I would like to start with you is just September 11th, 2001, a day that was, you know, big for all Americans. Um, but tell us where you were and, and how that impacted you. Yeah, I was a freshman in college at, uh, on September 11th, uh, 2001. And that, that day obviously changed the entire course of my life. Um, if you know, if you know anything about my story, obviously my family was impacted by terrorism uh, about five years prior. And so on that specific day, I remember thinking, I'm just now a new naturalized citizen in this country. And and now we have a different group of terrorists who are attacking my new home. And so I knew that I needed I needed to do something to be a part of the solution. And I just couldn't stand by. Um, I just started school. And so I had made a promise to my father that when I start something, I finish it. And so after some some tough conversation and some 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 planning together. We decided as soon as I graduated from the University of Maryland, I would go out there and and uh, join up uh, the military. And you know, so I had a goal, I had a path, and uh, it really gave me a, a, an understanding of exactly where I wanted to go in my life. And you mentioned uh, terrorism and your family. So talk about your uncle for a little bit, because in reading the book, I know that he played a, a central role and uh, really impacted you and and how you thought about. Uh, terrorism and and just just shed some light on that. Yeah, my uncle, you know, he was born in Algeria, which is obviously North Africa, and he was that individual that I was really too, truly drawn to as a child, and he was my favorite person. And so I used to go visit him a lot when I was growing up in Paris, France, and unfortunately in 1996, uh, he went in and joined the uh, Algerian army to go fight against this terrorist organization called the GIA that had come in at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s into Algeria to go out there and bring radical Islam to uh, this, to their country. And he, uh, even though he was an imam and a preacher in the Muslim faith, he put his he put this book down and I really say he put it in his heart and he put on a military uniform and he went to fight them uh, because they were not preaching uh, what he was preaching, and uh, they were obviously committing a lot of atrocities in the country. And on February 6, 1996, he was he was shot, uh, and then he was beheaded and dismembered. And um, you know, as a statement that you know from these folks. Um, so to me, that was obviously one of the most emotional and toughest times of my life. But I learned a lot and. I learned a lot from him in, in a short period of time and just really he motivated me and gave me that, that strength uh, to go out there and 
do something that's greater than oneself. How old were you when that happened? I was uh, 12 years old. And so at that point, was it in your head, like, I, I need to go, you know, fight these guys? And did that come in then? Or when did that start coming into your mind? Yeah. I mean, I was angry. And so that mindset was, um, when I get older, I'm going to go out there and find every single one of these individuals. and I'm going to kill them. But that was, you know, a 12 year old angry and, and emotionally unstable at the time, uh, making this, this type of uh, state. But, you know, in the end, you, you, I didn't join the military for that specific reason. I joined it for many different reasons to include that one. Got it. And so you come over to the U.S. and you're in high school. And I know you're talking about in the book, adjusting and adapting and not being able to speak English that well and having an accent. Um, but talk about sports for a little bit. So uh, I know you excelled at running. Uh, how did sports play a role in, in your high school experience? Well, I mean, I played, you know, when I was in, in France, coming from France, I played soccer, I did judo, and, um, you know, I was pretty, pretty good at both of them. So coming to the United States, uh, that was a great way to, you know, really introduce yourself to a new culture and meet new people and, and, and get yourself a new set of friends. So, um, you know, sports played a very, very important part in my, in my growing up process and my um, ability to really, truly adjust into a completely new, different system. And so, you know, I started off with soccer and met quite a few, quite, quite a few individuals uh, through the soccer team. And then I went into the, on a track team and really, you know, I had an opportunity to excel in that sport and which really allowed me and gave me more confidence in myself to go out there and, um, you know, you know, meet new people and, and really, uh, be a part of the high school, you know, world, you know, it's, which is completely different than what you expect in France. Sure. And running, what was your mindset like as a runner? Cause you also ran in college. Um, walk us through what your mentality was as a runner. You know, put in the work and, you know, learn how to suffer and take more pain than everybody else around you. That was really the mentality that I had. Uh, I, I honestly thought that, you know, I could take more pain than the majority of people around me. Yeah, you know, I was pretty good. I was you know, top in, you know, I would say top two, top three, and majority of my events in, in the state. So there's always a couple guys beating me, but um, I always saw it as, well, they've been doing this for a long time. I just got into the sport because I, I came in late, and I figured eventually I'd catch up to them in college, and I did for quite a few of them. What allowed you to take pain? And I, I think people don't realize, especially distance running, swimming, wrestling, uh, American football, I call them pain sports because you're going to have to deal with physical pain. Um, what would you do to try to handle the pain of, of running? Well, you just, you know, you got to be, you got to be cognizant of, of how your body's feeling. And you understand that pain is a sign that, you know, your body telling you what it can and can't take. But it's also a good parameter of where you can, where you need to really truly push yourself and and to take that next step. And that, and so I I used it as just a measuring stick for me. Um, and you know, there's there's always that saying that you get a second wind and you know you just get through these you know different plateaus. And you know when you plateau, you just gotta burst through. And 
you know, you just you, you sort of making an ally. Um, I used to think of myself like we're going to work together and we're going to go through a hell of a lot more than my competitors and together we're going to win this race. So you make it, you make pain your ally in, in essence and, you know, you can accomplish crazy things. But then again, you got to be kind of crazy to play any of these sports anyway. So. Yeah, well, crazy is a uh, is a good thing for for athletes typically, um, and I always laugh because there's some perfectionism that goes on in sports, and then there's there's also some arrogance or whatever you want to call it, swagger, confidence, um, and I'm curious how that mindset impacted you once you did decide to enlist. And uh, I know you talk a lot in the book about the training and um, how hard that was and how close you were to quitting. Um, so walk us through what that was like for you, but also the mentality that you developed, um, through, through training. So I, you know, you talk about ranger school, that was probably the toughest time of my life. And it's because it's so long and, you know, you, you, what you expose your, your mind and your body to is just, it's, it's not natural. Um, you know, lack of sleep, lack of food, uh, lack of nutrition and, you know, excessive amount of weight to carry on your back and, you know, you're moving 20 hours a day. It, it was just absolutely, you know, uh, shocking to the body and the mind. But, you know, I had it, I've always had this competitive mindset. And I, even though I, I was on brink, you know, on breaking points a couple of times during, during those, those 62 days, I, you don't want to quit on others. And so by associating yourself as a team member and realizing that you play an integral part of, of the success of the team, and if you fail, then they all fail, um, you can challenge yourself, your body, and your mind to just push through uh, just a little bit more every day. And that's what you need. You know, it's about accomplishing ta little tasks and, and taking it day by day, task by task, and not looking at the long run, long picture, and just making sure that you stay true to yourself and you go out there and, and you push yourself to the best of your abilities and, you know, you celebrate little wins. So, um, and that's what gets you through it. In Ranger School, little wins would be an extra 30 minutes of sleep. And that's, that's, that can change the entire mindset of the next day because you got 30, ex 30 minutes of extra sleep, uh, which means that you probably got three and a half hours and you're thinking, I feel amazing. Why Rangers? No, it's just to me, you know, my dad was in the Army, and I was just always fascinated by um, them, like yeah, the mission of, you know, raiding and uh, the training and Ranger School, the tab, the history, you know, Rogers Rangers out there going back in our history. It was just, it made sense. Yeah, I think you mentioned the book, The, the Creed, and Rangers Lead the Way. How How did Rangers Lead the Way? impact you during um some of the tough times and, and certainly uh once you were overseas well i think that you know the, the training that you go through and there's a reason why it's so tough it's because it wants it wants you to know that you're capable of accomplishing almost anything that you put your mind to and so your body can take a lot and that's one one of the biggest things i learned from ranger school is that um if i thought these were the limits uh, i was wrong in regards to my physical abilities, um, what can hold me back and what has been holding me back and everything that I've ever done in my life is my, my, my mindset, you know, and just thinking that, okay, well, 
I think that's it for me. Like it's been, you know, I give all, I give it all, and uh, you know, obviously the pain that I'm feeling right now is is a little excruciating, and that's just too much. Well, the reality is, you know, I, I'm probably I'm only tapping at 75. percent Probably got still a whole other quarter left, but and I have to train my mind to do so, and so that's what you know, sort of connected to my time in the military and when I was deployed. You know, Ranger School really played a big part of, in setting my mindset and in the right direction and giving me an opportunity to go through some really tough times, uh, some very difficult moments, and really come come out of it successfully because I was ready to take on a challenge at first, and I was also ready to accept the fact that I'm not the subject matter expert in everything and that I needed to make sure that everyone around me uh, played their part. And so the biggest piece I could do is not micromanage and allow them to be as successful as possible, even though they felt uncomfortable at times. And I'm the type of guy that wants to have control over the majority of everything that I do. <laughs> but I knew I had to play a role. And that's what I learned. Just, uh, you know, you got to train. You train your body for everything that you do, obviously, in the military. But you got to train your mind just as much, if not more, than, uh, than your body. What's, what sort of specific tools or techniques did you use to train your mind uh, to, to perform? Um, so one of the things I've done is visualization, right? I, I, that's a big piece of, you know, going over and understanding where, you know, we're going to go the next day if we're going on a mission. And then closing my eyes, if I've been there, I'm picturing that draw, picturing, you know, that ridge line, picturing the way that we're maneuvering, uh, just like I, what I used to do in track and just kind of close my eyes and, and think about the track and think about the race and the very key points in the race where I know I have to make a move, where I know I have to get myself in position and just kind of um, really playing that, that scenario over and over so that when it does happen in real life, you're, you know, you're prepared. You've seen this already, like maybe 10, 20, 30 times. And so uh, your mind is and your body is uh, and your body's reacting the, the way you trained yourself to react. And and you talk a lot about uh, your friend Gallardo, uh, Gallardo. I think I'm pronouncing Gallardo. Right. Yeah, Gallardo uh, saying he would quit if you quit uh, during the training. And you've mentioned already a couple times the power of doing something bigger than yourself and and right. having people. Just talk about that relationship and and how that impacted you. Yeah, I mean Gallardo was um, uh, not the nicest of people out there, and. And he was a badass. I mean, this guy took a shot, a shot in the head, and and um, saw Junta's Medal of Honor uh, scenario. And you know, he was a legend out there, and so he knew every every single individual that was a, a ranger instructor, and he knew who he was. And you know, he was tough. He was really good at what he did. And so the fact that he decided to support me that was pretty impressive on his part. This and and really the other pieces, he was never going to quit. I knew that. But he was trying to challenge me because he knew if he challenged me that, you know, the next day all I had to get through was just one more night of sleep and in this rain and then just wake up and, uh, you know, we'll start all over again. And and so it, it was a, a way to really motivate me and, and, and guide me and help me. And that's what I needed at the time. You know, to this day, I don't really know if I would have quit, but uh, I was pretty I was definitely thinking about how I was going to do it <laughs> <laughs> throughout throughout your journey. There are leaders, mentors, people that have helped show you the way, uh, starting with your, your dad, your uncle. Um, you, you, you mentioned people throughout the book. Why do you think that people were drawn to you uh, 
as you know, saying things like what Gallardo said to you, um, why do you think that is that people might have been drawn to you to help mentor and coach you? Well, I think I was it was probably me more drawn to them and and me taking that step to, to you know, to befriend them or ask for support with my father. I mean, my dad, obviously, that's just a normal uh, relationship that you would hope um, that your father or mother be a, a, a you know positive figure in your life. But everybody else, my coaches, my I think people see that I work hard and um, that I'm authentic, I guess, and that I, I, I truly want to play my part in the mission. I think Gallardo saw that I was not, I wasn't, a, I wasn't about me. I was about, you know, the team and I, I carried my weight when nobody else was watching. I didn't fall asleep on patrols and um, I didn't fall asleep on my watches. And so he probably respected me for that. And you know, he saw this guy that was struggling. He's like, and he figured he could support me or help me or, I don't know. Maybe it was just one of those rare days where Gallardo felt like being a nice person. <laughs> so, so you've got different leadership styles, though, throughout the book. Um, you talk about Mingas, you talk about Griffin, you talk about uh, Gallardo, you talk about your dad, um, and, and just these different leadership styles. Um, do, you, do you stitch together any commonalities between those people and, and, and their leadership styles as you think about what does successful leadership look like? Uh, I think the biggest piece is being able to, you know, truly not lead uh, based upon your own uh, self needs or or grandiose, you know, ideas or, or self um, um, uh, gratification type of of of, uh, of moments. Uh, it's about others around you. It's about sacrificing for uh, the people that you love and. That's the biggest piece that I got from all of them. They all had different leadership styles, very different. Um, Gerardo is more hard charging, uh, you know, screaming. My father is, uh, you know, very quiet type, but you know, random moments of just pure genius and 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 guidance. Um, the uh, Mingus Moore's incredible ability, as well as to stay quiet, but to just be just on point with everything that he says. Um, and he had that respect factor where he never yelled, he never cursed. And when he looked at you, you know, you just didn't want to disappoint him. You know, and Griffin was the, I am, I'm out there for everyone. Um, I care so much and I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that I give you the opportunity to succeed because if you succeed then I succeed and we all succeed and we all get to go home and be with our families. And people loved him for it and would follow him anywhere. So you got all these different type of leadership styles. And I was more of um, closer to Gallardo, I guess, you know, hard charging, yelling type of dude. And uh, I learned a lot from, from Griffin and Mingus. And I really completely changed my style of leadership. You mentioned uh, Griffin had this boldness, this confidence about him um, in the book. Where do you think that comes from? Where does Where does confidence come from? I think sports played a huge role uh, growing up. I think you got to have a foundation of a family where people challenge you early on, but also to believe in you and give you opportunities to succeed and highlight some of your successes. Um, uh, he was an incredible wrestler. And so he's a fighter, right? He was one of the top wrestling guys in Wyoming. And I think that gave him a lot of self-confidence himself. Obviously it built him into a stronger man and mentally. So, and that really, you know, that was sort of his foundation towards his success. 
Yeah, because you mentioned sports throughout. I forget there was another – forget who played hockey, but somebody was a big hockey uh, player as well. That was uh, Kennedy. Kennedy, right. So yeah. if, if you have children one day, how do you think about sports playing a role in their mentality and, and their development? I Honestly, I really hope they do play. Um, I hope that they um, they go out there and uh, they pick a sport and they really put their heart and soul into it. And maybe not just sports. Maybe it's you know music or it's art or something. I just want them to do something that challenges them. Um, obviously, for me, I'm selfish. I'd love for them to do sports because it challenges you both your mental aspect but also your physical um, uh, body. And so, you know, and you can learn a lot about yourself. I mean – you know, it's in sports that I learn about hard work. I learn about integrity. I learn about uh, failing over and over again and getting back up and, you know, having a plan. I learned about what, you know, doing other stuff for other people meant. And my favorite races in track was a relay because I had a responsibility to do my part so that we could all accomplish a mission as a team and celebrate together. So, you know, that's that's a big, big thing about sports. And so that really built my my mindset and my foundation. And I saw a lot of folks who were successful in the military have a background in sports. And so to me, that that's that played a big role. I want to just go back to your senior at Maryland. Um, why not go into the real world and and you know work uh, at that point? What is the main draw for you to enlist? I made a promise that I was going to go out there and serve my country. Um, I mean, by 2006, we, we are we've gone through Ramadi, we've gone through Fallujah. You know, we're hearing about what's going on in Afghanistan. I mean, it's it's, it's ugly. Uh, they're giving crazy reenlistment bonuses to captains to keep them in there because they know their mission is not over. So obviously, I need to give my I do I need to do my part as an American, and I needed to earn the right to earn the right to call myself an American. You know, if this country gave me an opportunity to be uh, naturalized, and so that's a responsibility. If I, my country's at war, I need to be a part of the solution. So that's a fascinating way to look at it, is that you felt like you had to earn your, your citizenship by, by going to war. Um, just unpack where that comes from. Like, wh- where does that idea come from for you? I think responsibility is an, as as a citizen of an of a of a country, um, not too long ago, uh, we, you know, if you were born in, in in a nation that was at war, everybody went to war, and so I just thought to me that who am I to go out here and and call myself an American after this this nation gave me the opportunity to come in its land, you know, and really enjoy all the fruits, right, and then have others die for me as well, so that I can live my life. In this, in this, you know, in this new world, and no, absolutely not. I need to, you know, be thankful. And the best part is, they didn't force me to do it, right? It was just they. It was just me volunteering to go out there and and earn it. And so that's just a mindset that I had. And maybe that comes from my father. That comes from my uncle. Um, you know, it comes from my grandfather. I'm not sure, but it's just the way I felt. Sure. Um, all right. So take me overseas and when. When you are now serving, uh, what was what what went on over there that you expected, and what went on over there that you didn't expect? What was different, and what was what you expected? Well, I guess the only thing that you know what I expected was that I was going to get shot at eventually. Uh, what I didn't expect was just the whole lifestyle and the reality behind 
how many patrols we did and the, the folks that are serving and the brotherhoods that you, you forge out there. Um, you know, and, and I thought Ranger School was a lot harder in combat and just, and so uh, I thought combat was, you know, I'd heard about 90%, you know, boredom, 10% ecstasy, right? And so I didn't understand that till I got there. And so, you know, we, I can't tell you how many times we went out and walked for six, eight, ten hours and nothing happened. Um, it's almost a weird feeling where you're hoping you get in a firefight because if not, and you're just like, what the heck am I doing? You know, if I would, if I was the enemy, I would have let these guys, I would let us walk for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and just wait for that moment that where complacency, um, you just sit, sits in and, and, and it's an attack, but they didn't do that. You know, they get bored too. So I guess they wanted to pick a little fight, which is never ended up well for them. But you know, that's, that's probably the biggest piece, but I never realized how much fun I would have out there too. I'm, I absolutely loved it. Uh, and you know, it's unfortunately the, the bad moments are, are life changing and the worst moments you ever go through. But the experiences I've had up there, the relationships I've forged, the people I've met, uh, from local Afghans to U.S. military to foreign military, uh, I met some some of my best friends, and you know I truly truly understood the whole power of what love is um, from my time out there. How would you define love? It's uh, the ability to truly put everything that is in front of you, everything you've accomplished, everything that you want to accomplish. Um, uh, everything that you want and need and feel and put them to the side uh, to sacrifice for someone else mm. because that's how much you care about them, that you're willing to sacrifice your whole history and your life over and over, day in and day out for the people around you. Uh, so that's that to me is um, the ultimate way of what love is. Love is, you know, to care for another um, and then true love is, you know, to care for another, uh, understanding that, you know, sacrifice has to potentially be made and you're willing to do it, you know, day in and day out. So take us to the day that, you know, is, is a fateful day for you and, uh, a, a tragic day in, in a lot of senses and where sacrifice really comes full blown and, and is, is right in front of you. Uh, can you paint that picture for us? Yeah, I mean, that day was August 8, 2012. We were going to a security meeting in eastern Afghanistan, the Kunar province. And I'd done this patrol quite a, quite a few times. I actually owned that area of operation uh, the previous tour, so a couple of years prior. And we, when I, when I arrived, I actually did not receive the security detail I was supposed to get. Um, so I was supposed to have 12 to 15 escorts, uh, so 12 to 15 soldiers that were going to escort us from the from the building. Uh, that we landed to the governor uh, compound, which was about an 1100 meter movement outside of a military base. So we had to walk into the streets and about 700 meters into the walk. Uh, we, two motorcycles came towards our patrol and that's when we realized that, Oh my gosh, this is, this is not good. Um, you know, I've been in too many firefights before to understand that this is called diversion. And so I, um, uh, we were lucky enough that I had taken Afghan National Army with us, and I put them up front to appear bigger. And one of the Afghan National Army soldiers did a really good job of raising his rifle and screaming at the motorcycles. We forced them to drop. At the same time, though, that's when an individual 
came from uh, the structures to our left and uh, with a suicide vest. And so I'll never forget as he was walking parallel to us, but walking backwards, which was very creepy and weird. Um, I remember staring at him and when he did a 180 degree turn and then another 90 degree turn towards our patrol, that's when, you know, you just react. And, you know, he was a threat and he was out there to hurt the boss and Sergeant Major and the team. And so I was the closest to him and I remember thinking, what the hell is wrong with this guy? And then going towards him, screaming at him, hitting him and then grabbing him by the chest, realizing he has a suicide vest and thinking, well, that's a bomb. That's not good. So but I remember the only thing I was really going through my mind, I was like, oh, man, I got to throw him as far away as possible, as quickly as possible from away from the boss because he's about to blow up. And I threw him and, you know, as he landed and he detonated, everything went black. But just like that, eight seconds. That's why we call the book Eight Seconds of Courage, because it's you can go through your entire life and not realize what courage truly is about. And that's, um, you know, in this case, it was just you know re- reacting to a, a dangerous situation. And I, 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 I couldn't have told you how I would have reacted prior to me reacting it. You know, and that's what I tell people all the time. I think it's funny when people say, I would have done this. I would have done that. I don't know. You know, I was hoping I would react this way, but maybe I would have just wanted, but maybe, you know, there's a good chance I could have froze. There's a good chance I could have seeked cover because he's got a, a weapon on him or a bomb. But, you know, my training kicked in and my love for my brothers kicked in. And, you know, you just react to a situation and you try to do your job the best of your abilities. So for us civilians, we don't have any clue on how they train you, how to deal with someone with a bomb strapped to their chest. What do they do? What do they tell you to do when you're confronting someone and you realize that they have a bomb strapped to them? So it's so funny. I don't ever remember like officially training for like a suicide bomber. You know, I, I just think that definitely the thing they would tell you is not don't run and jump on them. But so, you know, I would I would assume like probably, you know, you try to identify the person as quickly as possible and then you, you put them down and then you, you know, you jump for cover i don't know but there is no protocol <laughs> there's nothing no, you can really do no it's just yeah i just gotta hope that they don't get close to you like that but it's just like a grenade just coming at you and rolling down the hall when you're in in a fatal tunnel right where you have no no other exits so uh you know you can do seek cover or occasionally there's a guy that's going to jump on the grenade yeah protect others Got it. And uh, after the fact, you, you wake up. Um, I, I forget exactly the timing of it, um, but you're waking up in, in, in severe pain and you know, had some people that, that helped you as well. Uh, walk us through what's going on in the mind when you wake up from that and, and chaos is really ensuing. Well, it's actually really interesting because I've used, I was very, you know, my, I got my, uh, uh, I got knocked pretty good. So I was dazed and confused. And, and I remember coming back and, and grabbing my helmet, throwing it to the side and just kind of looking at my leg so that my leg was in, was mangled. My foot was facing me. So I was thinking, wow, this is not good. So your first thing that goes through is, is this real? Is this real? Is this a bad dream? And when you realize it's real, um, then training kicks in again. And so at that point, I remember thinking, wow, I'm in shock because I can't feel anything. So that's really good. Um, so 
and I checked myself for other type of wounds, and then I made sure that I had a, um, I couldn't find my rifle, so I took my pistol out, made sure I had a round in the chamber because I was probably in the kill zone and I needed to get out of there. And then I started planning my exit when Brank grabbed me by the end of the play carrier and dropped me into the ditch where my medic, Balderrama, specialist Balderrama, saved my, saved my life, saved my leg by applying a good tourniquet, keeping me awake. So, you know, it's funny because you, know, you can be in one of the worst possible places or situations and still feel super calm. And that's how I felt. I felt pretty calm in that entire scenario. Like I was cool, calm and collected. And I knew what to do. And I followed these specific steps and that was going to be able, that was going to probably allow me to get out of this situation alive. It is interesting to me that you have training for after the fact and can trust in that training, but you know, the actual act of, you know, how do you handle a suicide bomber? There is no real way to do it. Um, but then to kick back into the trust in the training, um, any idea how that happens and, and how that process works for you? I think repetitive training is one of those things that, you know, it's instilled in your mind and then really um, having no other choice. You know, I mean, there's what else am I going to do? That's my job. It's survival too. So instincts take over. Got it. And, and, I, and, and so you obviously survive, but some of your brothers do not. Um, take us to uh, Walter Reed Hospital, which is, you know, miles from where you grew up um, and what that fight was like um, for you and uh, that experience and sort of the aftermath. Yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, um, I spent the next four months of my life as an inpatient at Walter Reed Hospital. And, you know, you're, you're fed cocktails of ketamine, Dilaudid oxys, you know, IV Benadryl every day. Not, you know, obviously not all those drugs at the same time, but, you know, a mix of them. And IV Benadryl to go to sleep. And, you know, and then you start having those thoughts at night when the doors close and you're by yourself and in the dark and you're thinking about all you know, Command Sergeant Major Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Reggie Abdel Fattah, four men who died from the attack. So I survived with a bomb that blew up on my feet, and they were 20 feet away, and they died. So you start, you know, trying to replay that scenario over and over again and try to understand the fact that why you lived and they didn't, and you, then you start comparing yourself to them, and there's no winning in that case. And so, um, you know, adding in the, the drugs you're not yourself and you start having crazy thoughts of like suicide and things like that. So then that becomes your biggest fight. Uh, so another survival uh, battle that you're going through. And this time it's, you know, the worst enemy, which is your own mind uh, because there's no su real support system externally on that one. It's just you and your mind. And so you have to really, really battle. But I see why so many veterans take their lives. Uh, it's because that's the toughest battle they'll ever go through mm. and nobody and something it's, it's a blind battle too so you can't even you can't see your enemy your enemy is you what advice would you give to anybody who might be listening to this and might be going through something where they're having thoughts or uh have acted or, or whatever the case may be uh what thought what what advice or, or comments would you would you share with them open up open up you got to have a conversation i think that's the, one, that's the one thing that helped me is you know i had a great conversation with travis mills and and that that really uh 
relieved a lot of the the stress and pressure and anxiety that I was feeling at the time. And it was um, an unbelievable opportunity for me to, uh, you know, unload so many thoughts and so many, so, so a lot of pain out in the open and, and, and feel, you know, these weights picked off on my shoulders and my head and my back. So I think that your opportunity to open up and, and it's not easy. I mean, you feel like nobody can understand you and nobody, and you know what? It's, yeah, you're right. Potentially people won't understand you, but just you being able to open up is potentially going to save uh, uh, your life. And before we started recording, you talked to me about the Fisher House and the work that they do uh, at Walter Reed to support the families of these people. Uh, what advice would you give people who might be on the other side of it and uh, might have a son or a daughter or, you know, a sibling who is going through something like that? Never give up on them. I know there's going to be days that uh, you should never, you know, that everything that you do and say, and you're going to feel like there's nothing that I can do to help this person. They're so gone. They're so lost. Um, they won't listen to me. They don't love me anymore, or they're just crazy. No, you just got to keep battling. You got to keep battling. You got to keep battling. Day in, day out, keep going after them because eventually you're going to break through. And once you break through, you're going to save their life. Um, but it's not pretty. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's it's a difficult task. And you're going to have to go through some rough times but and not give up. And but in the end, you're potentially going to save that person's life. And obviously, post-traumatic stress disorder covers a wide range of people and, um, you know, people that have had serious abuse in their childhood can have it. People that are in a car accident can have it. Certainly uh, our soldiers, we, we talk a lot about them. Um, when people are going through stuff like that, uh, what thoughts do you have on, on how to handle it? You know, you just got to, you know, you want to be you, the biggest thing you, you is you want to have a dir direct impact and you want to go out there and, and support everyone. But you have to, like, you know, take a step back and understand the situation and you got to be smart about it. You got to go in with a plan. You got to understand, you know, what type of impact you want to have. And you got to commit yourself to to that that long journey. And it's not a one day fix type of scenario. It's just not reality. Then you got to have to get some allies. You got to get some people close to them and family and support system built in to make sure that they're there. Um, and even in the biggest piece is when you think someone's better and they're, you know, they're completely recovered, just be careful because it's called relapse. It's just like anything else in life. Um, they happen and it's not a, it's not the end of the world, but that support system needs to be operational still and ready to deploy at any time. So, you know, let's have a plan. It's interesting that a lot of that mirrors what you went through, you know, your, your training before and you create a support system and then you go through hell um, and then you still need the support, you need to sacrifice. In some ways, what you're describing mirrors, um, you know, what, what you learned throughout your time in the military. Have you ever thought about it that way? Well, I think it's just the way, you know, the military does a really good job of, of structuring um, organizations and as well as a plan, right? And that's just about, everything's about planning and, and, and having, you know, a contingency plan and options and, you know, making sure that you know every step of the way what's going to happen and, and, re and how you're going to react. Um, I've taken that and applied that to my, 
daily life. And, you know, it's really I've simplified a lot of things in my life uh, about, you know, stay organized, understand where my stuff are and have a plan and stay on plan and respect others. And, you know, things like that I learned in the military that, you know, have a big, been very beneficial for me as a civilian and not only in my professional career, but in my personal life as well. So, yeah, it makes sense to me that I've taken that piece and utilized it to, in my recovery and, and then and essentially in my, in my, who I am as an individual. There's an underpinning throughout the book and even in our conversation today of, of gratitude. And, you know, you talk about being grateful uh, for what this country gave you and feeling like you're obligated to earn, you know, your citizenship. Uh, how does gratitude play a role in your life today and, and, and daily uh, as, as you live? Well, no one in the world has ever accomplished anything on their own, right? Or successfully continue to accomplish a great thing on their own. Um, and to me, the great thing is about to be is to be a good citizen. And so, and to be a good citizen, I need great role models, and and I need great support system, and I need people to get me back on track when I start to deviate from the path, and I need uh, folks to join me in some of my endeavors, and I need to join others in theirs. And so, so, you know, I, I've been lucky my entire life. I grew up with great parents and um, I grew up uh, with great teachers, great mentors, great friends, great teammates, um, great brothers and sisters in the military. And I've been given opportunities after opportunities to succeed. And when things got tough, I had the support system. So um, there's nothing I could ever complain about. Instead, I, I need to be part of that solution to support others, um, to give, you know, sort of pay it forward. And what do you do? Uh, you said you're very organized and the military has helped you develop discipline. What is What do you do daily to remind yourself of how you want to live and live intentionally? Um, just walk us through some of the things that you do on a daily basis or habitual basis. Yeah, so I wear this bracelet right here that's got the names of Command Sergeant Major Griffin, Major Grant, Major Kennedy, and that's every morning. You know, uh, make after you we make the bed and brush your teeth and things like that. I just kind of look at it and make sure that I'm tracking, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing that day, and that I have responsibility to make sure I earn it too, right? Uh, and I honor these guys. So I just kind of have a system in place. You know, just I, I'm not I'm not good with it every day. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong, not perfect, but you know, just trying to do the same thing you know make your bed and that's comes from uh, the Merck Raven speech you know brush your teeth and you know look at the bracelet go work out and just be ready for my day and start off on my own by eight o'clock in the morning I've done more than majority of people are going to do throughout their, their day and that sets me up for success so that's the organization piece and that's the mindset that's the discipline piece um, that I, I believe is very uh uh, beneficial to my current success in whatever I'm doing, uh, whether it's in my relationship or whether it's at work. And so it gives me a plan and, and, and that I need to stick with. Uh, I like plans. And so I'm one of those individuals. I don't like to free flow everything and just kind of let it be and see what happens. That's just not me. Um, I know a lot of people that's their way. So I like the structure. Where Where did you get the bracelet from? No, this one. So I, the first one I received was, was made by Brink that was on my team. And this one, Carson, I don't know where she made it from, but the first one broke after a couple of years and she made that one for me. Very cool. And does it say anything else other than their names? 
Yeah, just you know the operation and the date of uh, that they were killed in action, and you have the Medal of Honor uh, symbol, and then you have the the crest from uh, our unit. Super cool. Uh, talk about Medal of Honor. So um, that's not something that is taken lightly. Um, I forget the exact number of Medal of Honor winners, but if you could just share with people how distinct of an honor it is and how surreal that experience was for you. Yeah, there's only 71 of us living right now. So, and you know, in our, throughout throughout our history, there's been 3,500 Medal of Honors. Uh, the first, I think, 12 or maybe 1,800 were 212 and 1800. I can't remember exactly were in during the Civil War, and that was literally the only award that they gave during the Civil War. So, um, it's it's uh, it's you know the highest award military wise you can be presented. It's presented only by the President of the United States at the White House, and so. Um, it's something that you never think about. You never want to join this society because that means that something terrible has happened. More than likely, you're dead as well. Majority of the other folks who receive the Medal of Honor actually never, never made it to their to their ceremony because they were killed in action. So, uh, it's a big honor. It's it's the responsibility of a lifetime out there to make sure that you represent the military and your country to your best of your abilities. Uh, so you become iconic in in essence in our military world and. It's kind of weird. <laughs> what opportunities have come with it? Well, speaking of opportunities, obviously you'd be able to platform to really truly make an impact if you want to. Um, somehow, magically, once you put the medal on your neck, apparently you become a subject matter expert in everything. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny and sad, but you know, really more funny. So people want to hear you speak a, a lot. So it's, uh, you know, stay grounded and stay humble and understand that you know, you're no smarter than you were the day before. Um, so, and if you are, it's because you're going, still going to school and learning stuff in life. It's not because of a medal. And remember what it's for. It's not for you. It's not about you. It represents those who never, never came home, represents our military, our nation. It represents everything that this country stands for. So you're just a courier. And speaking up and speaking out, uh, what is your mindset like when you're delivering speeches? I mean, you've delivered speeches I would imagine to all kinds of different people with all kinds of backgrounds, uh, including at the Democratic National Convention uh, last year. So I'm also curious about your decision to do that. Um, But talk about speaking and your mindset uh, when you're speaking. So, you know, it's interesting because I'm not a native speaker and 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 I I, I love it. Um, I love being able to stand in front of a crowd and have a conversation and just tell a story and just, you know, really connect with people. So. It's it's a lot of fun. I I don't get nervous. Um, I, I maybe I, I did at the DNC a little bit because, I mean, everybody was there, um, and well, a lot of people were there. Not everybody was there, and that was just you know you 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 look yeah a couple presidents up there. It's pretty pretty crazy. But other than that, it's just I always felt comfortable you know, being able to speak to folks, and I enjoy it. But so my mindset is about telling a story and trying to connect with the with the audience. And so, you know, a couple, couple, couple tricks I've learned uh, over the course of the last couple of years, which is probably the biggest one for an individual that stands in front of a crowd is connect with your crowd. So when you're saying a line, just stare at one person and look at that person. And, you know, imagine you're only speaking to that person. That's, that's the only person in the entire audience. And then move to the next person and it just keeps you calm collected and on on track to deliver your message and so 
I, I have that, you know, preparate, you, know, you prepare and you for it then, but you have to enjoy it in a weird way. I do. Uh, DNC was simple, you know, I'm a Republican. I spoke at the, uh, at the DNC because I, at the time, didn't feel like the person uh, representing uh, the Republican Party was a Republican or spoke for me. And I felt like the other person that was running for office was a better uh, candidate for our, comp- uh, for our company, our nation. And so that was my decision, and I stand by it. And I, I, I had an incredible experience. Um, I do not regret a single moment of it. And you know, I'm I learned a lot from it. I also got a lot of backlash from people, but I don't really care. So kind of worked out. How do you not really care? How do you have that mindset to? Because in the military, look like. I do a straw poll of the people that I run into that are in the military and uh, just get a sense of where they're at politically. And I don't know what the numbers are from a political standpoint, Democrat versus Republican, but certainly the people that I come into contact with seem to be more supportive of the other person that was running. Um, so how did you not care when I'm sure there's a lot of pushback from a lot of your community? Well, because my message was about supporting our veterans. And so I didn't go out there with a political message, you know, bashing in, uh, one candidate and highlighting another candidate. I went in to talk about the importance of supporting our veterans, importance of making sure that, you know, we take care of them through at the VA, that we, you know, we take care of their families. And so that was my message. And, you know, if I felt, if I went to sleep at night uh, uh, feeling sorry for, for myself because some people said some things that, you know, they don't have any idea what they're talking about, uh, then I would be just be wasting brain cells and, and energy. Uh, you know, you in life make your own bet. And so I decided to speak at a political event that in this country or any in major, majority of the countries, but specifically in this country is means you're putting yourself on a firing line. And I understood that. And I took the risk and I took the chance. And guess what? Some people were very negative and some people were very positive. And it didn't bother me. I got a call from the president, President Obama, a couple couple weeks later. And, you know, he, had, he called me on my cell phone and he said, hey, I'm really proud of you. And that was a, did a heck of a job. You got potential future in doing this. I was like, nah, I'm good. I don't want to do that politically, but appreciate it, you know, Mr. President. But, you know, it was cool. Yeah, great, great experience. Talk about President Obama because uh, he's a central figure in the book. Um, you know, came and visited you at Walter Reed. Uh, you, you're, you talk about in the book your dad being a lifelong Republican <laughs> and uh, meeting him as well. Um, what was that interaction like for you personally? I, I love the man so much. He is just, just, just absolute gentleman and and authentic as you can think of he represents everything that i want my kids to grow up to be like because you know he came in and spent 10 minutes with us and you know there's this conversation nobody was else was in the room and there was just conversations and topics that he remembered three years later and he's talking to my mom about and he's talking to me about and i'm just thinking like this is a president of the united states you know how many things he has to talk about and go through every single day how does he have the memory to remember such a little thing is because he truly cared. And, you know, I think he went to see 10 veterans or 10 service members at the hospital that day. And I bet you he remembers every single one of them, every single name, every single one of their mothers and fathers in there. Um, and I just thought I was so impressed by him. And the, the many conversations I've had with him on the phone or in person, 
just reaffirmed and uh, my why I respect the man so much. You know, I didn't always stand with him politically. Uh, you know, and there's some stuff that I really disagree with him on, but I don't care about that. I care about him as a human being, and and yeah, he's president of the United States, but he's also you know Obama, and and he's he's a person that I would have a beer with any single day, any day. The book is called Eight Seconds of Courage. What does the word courage mean to you? You know, being a, being being willing to do something that is probably not going to be as beneficial to you as for others. It's about sacrificing. It's about, you know, thinking of, of others and people around you and not just friends, you know, maybe complete strangers as well before thinking of one's safety and one's own self. And so um, to me, courage is about being willing to, to do the tough, to take the tough decision on and not take the easy path out. When you described that, it sounded an awful lot like how you define love. Uh, how does love and courage intersect? Well, I think it's about, you know, I mean, hey, it takes a lot of courage to marry someone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, <laughs> it takes a lot of courage to stay in a relationship when things go wrong, too. You know, think about it. Take the easy path out and, you know, you can quit on people and you can quit on yourself, too. It takes courage to go through a tough time and potentially with the understanding that you're willing to sacrifice for the greater good of this relationship. And because there's something worthwhile in, in behind all this and, and there's, there's a purpose and a science behind all of it. And I think that's where the intersect is that, you know, love and courage are never easy, but in the end it's, it's worth it all. And it's interesting that love and courage from an individual aspect you can see, but also from a team aspect, uh, when a, a great team has courage and love, um, in the, in the team sport world, that's where a lot of championship teams, uh, live. Um, I want to just end with, uh, let us know what you're up to now. Um, and, uh, what life is like for you. Uh, yeah. and just fill us in. So yeah, right now I'm, I just moved from Washington DC to Seattle. I, I work for the Boeing company, been there for a couple of years, and now I'm the chief of staff of the CEO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes. So I run his operations here in the Puget Sound area. You get to travel the world with him, and I get to understand uh, how we build airplanes and how we sell them and what we can do as well um, in the future. So it's super exciting. It's an unbelievable opportunity. It's a completely different world that I ever expected I would be in. I never for one day thought I would work for the Boeing company. I like to jump out of airplanes and like much riding them. And now I'm part of the whole world of making them. So it's, uh, it's just, you know, sometimes you pinch yourself on the opportunities in front of us. And, you know, probably the best thing that's going to happen to me is I'm getting married in November. So it's exciting. Carry some little courage out there. I'm wishing you much courage and much love uh, with that. And then you can call me when you decide to have a kid and I will talk to you about courage and love when it comes to, uh, <laughs> to being a dad. Cause that's a whole nother, uh, another set of sacrifice. And, uh, I think, I think your life experience will, will help you with that as well. Um, so I just want to give you, even though you're on the, in the wrong Washington and even though you're on the West coast, I want to give you a megaphone to promote anything that you think deserves a megaphone. Um, it could be social media uh, where people can find you. 
Uh, I know you do a lot of public speaking, so how they can find you for that. Uh, and also anything else that you're involved with that deserves a megaphone. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can find me at Lauren.Groberg on Twitter and as well Instagram. Um, and then, you know, really the megaphone, if I could use it for it, it's just, uh, hey, go out there and do something that's that supports another, a loved one or, or a complete stranger. Um, you know, say hello to a homeless person. Trust me, you're going to make their day. They probably don't get many people to treat them and look at them as, as a human being. So do something that's uh, nice with someone else. Love it. Well, I don't know you other than our conversations this way, but I have a lot of love for you and not just you, but like, um, what you do represent now, uh, which is our military. And, you know, I think we should never stop loving our military. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that and the courage that they have and, um, the courage that they face, uh, regardless of rank, regardless of how much time they spend there and just having the courage to put themselves on the line for people like me. Um, so thank you for that. And I can't let you go without thanking you, uh, for all the work you continue to do to, uh, be authentic with yourself and, uh, you know, your values and what you care most about. And, and you make certainly people in Montgomery County and the state of Maryland proud. So, uh, if nothing else, keep that up and, uh, and appreciate you giving me the time. And hopefully when you're back in DC next time, we can get together and, and meet in person as well. Sounds good. We really appreciate the time. And, uh, this is awesome and great question. So hopefully, uh, people enjoy this and, and let's connect soon. All right. Thank you so much, Flo. Take care. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Yeah, so I wear this bracelet right here that's got the names of Command Sergeant Griffin, Major Grand Major Kennedy. And that's every morning, you know, uh, make after you we make the bed and brush your teeth and things like that. I just kind of look at it and make sure that I'm tracking know what I'm supposed to be doing that day and that I have responsibility to make sure I earn it too right uh, and I honor these guys so I just kind of have a system in place you know just I, I'm not I'm not good with it every day don't, you know get me wrong not perfect but you know just trying to do the same thing you know make your bed and that's comes from uh, the Merck Raven speech you know brush your teeth and you know look at the bracelet go work out and just be ready for my day and start off on my own by eight o'clock in the morning I've done more than majority of people are going to do throughout their, their day. And that sets me up for success. So that's the organization piece. And that's the mindset. That's the discipline piece um, that I, I believe is very uh, uh, beneficial to my current success in whatever I'm doing, uh, whether it's in my relationship or whether it's at work. And so it gives me a plan and, and, and that I need to stick with. Uh, I like plans. And so I'm one of those individuals. I don't like to free flow everything and just kind of let it be and see what happens. That's just not me. Um, I know a lot of people that's their way. So I like the structure. 